This episode of In Good Company is sponsored by Plum, a money management app and one-stop destination for managing your personal finances. Looking after your finances doesn't need to be complicated. And with Plum, it's easier than ever to take control of your money situation, no matter what your situation is. Using automated tools, Plum allows you to manage your money with minimal effort, whether that's saving money, opening a pension, or comparing and switching your energy bill and insurance providers. As you probably know, when it comes to pensions, the most important thing is to start one as early as possible. And with Plum's new self-invested personal pension, you can actually consolidate all your existing pensions in one place, which is great if you've got a few different pensions from various employers. And you can choose from a range of different investment funds for your pension, including a fund that aims to deliver an ethical financial return by investing in shares of companies that meet positive carbon and environmental criteria. Download the Plum app for free now and try it out for yourself. Please note, your capital is at risk if you choose to invest. Thank you very much to Plum. Hello and welcome to In Good Company, a podcast about culture and ideas hosted by me, Otegi Wagba, in which I have the pleasure of speaking to some of the most exciting and influential cultural voices of the moment. To coincide with the publication of my new book, We Need to Talk About Money, which is out now, every episode in this eight-part season is me speaking to various women about their relationships with and experiences of money and having those honest conversations that I think we're all dying to have but often don't get to. If you don't know much about my book, We Need to Talk About Money, here's a little overview. It's a part memoir, part cultural commentary, exploring my experiences with money over the years and what those experiences say more generally about our relationships with money and our position in society, particularly as that relates to women. So it's a mixture of the personal, stories from my childhood, adolescence, my professional life, but it also touches on a lot of bigger issues, from class and privilege to feminism and race, beauty standards, toxic workplaces, how money can affect friendships, and above all, how people's experiences of those things might differ and impact their lives. You can buy it now in hardback, ebook and audio, with signed copies available from waterstones.com, and I've linked to all those retailers in the show notes. On today's episode, I'm talking to the writer Claire Seal, who you probably know as My Frugal Year. The Instagram account that Claire started in 2019 to anonymously document her journey out of £27,000 worth of debt. Her story immediately struck a chord, and within just one year, Claire's audience had mushroomed to a following of 45,000 people. Her posts offering advice and solidarity to a growing community who perhaps saw themselves in Claire, a working mother of two on an average salary, trying her best to take control of her financial situation while also raising a young family. In 2020, Claire published Real Life Money, an honest guide to taking control of your finances, which is very much a realistic approach to personal finance that addresses many of the deeper causes of debt and financial difficulties and offers advice that readers can adapt to their own pace and circumstances. On this episode, we talked about the emotional underpinnings of debt, and the role that social media and Instagram comparison culture played in Claire's own situation, as well as how she tries to mitigate those influences now. We also discussed the stigma of not having money, the guilt and shame that often ensues, and how to alleviate those feelings if that's something you're suffering from. And of course, Claire shared some excellent practical advice for anyone taking the first steps in trying to tackle their own debt, which is something I'm really grateful for. The crushing reality of debt isn't something I'm in a position to offer advice on, and so I'm really pleased to be able to share Claire's expertise with you all. And I sincerely hope that her journey and advice will both inspire and inform anyone who's in a similar position to the one Claire was in just a few years ago. Here she is. So Claire, tell me how you came to set up the Instagram account, My Frugal Year, that started this whole journey off. It was like... A real breaking point in my relationship with money. Things had been really bad for a while and I'd been sort of trying to like juggle small amounts from one account to another, trying to plug these sort of growing holes in 
our budget and it was one day mid-March so it was mid-month and both me and my husband were salaried at this point and I was in an unarranged overdraft which is the really bad one where you used to get charged a daily fee although they've changed things a bit now so you just pay like a crazy amount of interest on your whole overdraft and my bank was calling me and I was really panicking and I spoke to them on the phone and the woman sort of said to me when are you going to be able to sort this out and I was like it's going to be the end of the month I genuinely don't know what to do I'd like run out of rope here and she asked why and no one had ever asked me that before on the phone to my bank and I just heard myself say there's no money left and actually she was really nice to me and she refunded some previous charges which brought me just about within my limit it was like the tiniest amount of breathing space but I came off that call like thinking something's got to change finally but also for the first time in a while feeling like maybe I could change things and like maybe if I spoke to some of my other creditors that they might be able to help me but I knew that I tried to do it kind of in the back of a notebook or in a spreadsheet before and I knew that I needed a way to find myself to hold myself accountable and so for some reason I decided to do it on Instagram. I was a bit aware of the debt-free community on there and I sort of thought I'd get like a couple of handfuls of followers maybe who'd like shout at me if I spent too much or to have some degree of accountability but I didn't expect for it to grow into sort of the community that it is now and so yeah it's been it's been a really strange couple of years yeah definitely and what was the response like to your Instagram when you first started posting for the first couple of months it was very much sort of a few people following like some people commiserating but like quite a lot of people offering advice and then As I started to sort of realise there was a bit more going on than what was on the surface, because I think in the beginning, I really just assumed that the problem was that I was bad with money and that that was it. It was like a superficial problem that I needed to fix. And then the more I got into it, I realised, oh, actually, like all of this has come from somewhere. And I think I probably need to fix all of that before things are going to get better. So I started writing about that side of things. And I wrote an article for quite a popular blog. And when that was released, it was just like a huge influx of people saying that they had always felt the same and that they're in the same situation or they'd been in a similar situation. And I was just really surprised. I'd always struggled to find people talking like honestly about money and about the huge effect that it has on your life. I think a lot of people still really struggle. And it is, it's really difficult to talk about. I felt accountable, definitely, but also quite sort of supported. And like, wait, I'd always felt so alone. Like all of my friends on the surface seemed like they were doing great, like buying houses, moving forward in their lives. And I felt like this situation with money was like keeping me stuck. And so it was amazing to see the empathy and the sort of like shared experience, I guess. Mm. And just really quickly, just for some context for people listening who might not be familiar with your story, how much debt were you in when you first started posting? When I first started posting and sort of at its worst, it was just over 27k and like for extra context I think it was about 30 quid less than my annual salary at that point so it was a lot (laughs) the number sounds so high and like it shocked me then and it still sometimes feels quite shocking now it wasn't one big decision to take on that much it was the culmination of loads of smaller decisions I think a lot of people find this, it just builds and builds and then all of a sudden it's out of control. That's kind of bringing me on to my next question, which is how did you get into debt and like what were the contributing factors? I've always been a real spender and actually I still probably now like to some degree, I think I have a much better relationship with spending and I spend for better reasons now and I've 
make better decisions now but I've always been quite a spender and I think like the first debt that I ever took on was when I was 18 and my car broke down the I think the brake pads and discs went and I was working like part-time at the Disney shop at the time so I couldn't afford to just pay 400 quid outright so I took on an overdraft it felt like a big deal then but then when you start university and they kind of use take a box and they add like a credit card and overdraft to your account and it's interest free so it feels like free money and I definitely sort of absorbed that into my ideas of how much money I had and it just continued from then and then I graduated on a really low salary and I always had lived kind of at least a little bit beyond my means. And then when I was 24, I was earning 16 grand. I got pregnant and then there was all of the stuff that went along with that. So my now husband, then boyfriend and I had to like cobble together some kind of semblance of family life. You know, the house, the childcare, safe car. And so that was really like, the icing and the cherry on the cake. And it really sort of cemented my relationship with money for a long time. And then we got married, then we had another baby. And looking back, it's strange to imagine how I ever really felt like that was affordable. But I think there's a real like blueprint for how people live their lives that I think is quite out of date and comes from like our parents' generation of like, meet someone, get married, have children, get a house. And it was sort of doable, like, in your 20s and 30s then. But I think that now we have tougher decisions to make. And I just didn't make any of those decisions. <laughs> so, How much did social media and Instagram play a role in your spending during that period? Because I feel like I've seen you talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it definitely did. Especially, I would say after I had my first son and then when I got married and had my second baby as very much sort of I have always been like quite people pleasing like very worried about what other people think of me and I think social media exacerbates that for so many people in loads of different ways as well you can sort of worry about what people think of how you look or how your house is or what your opinions are I wanted my wedding to be picture perfect and then definitely when my second son was born I felt quite isolated and there's like a very big sort of parenting community on Instagram and there are certain like it things where if you've got them you feel like part of a club. There are quite a lot of product brands that have that like club feeling to them and so yeah I definitely spent way more than I could afford on quite bougie baby things or ex sort of like decorative things for our house when I was at home on maternity leave and I was kind of feeling really inferior to all of my friends with children who like owned their house and were able to like paint a nursery for their baby and things mm. I couldn't see like all of those factors but I've had to really try and understand my relationship with money in order to fix things. And I think I try and kind of tread a bit of a line of understanding without making excuses. What have you learned in terms of safeguarding against what I kind of think of as comparison culture and Instagram and social media and the way that that influences your spending? Because, you know, that's still something that affects me, I think, quite subliminally. And I often catch myself being like, do you actually want this item or do you just want it because you've seen it on Instagram half a dozen times now and I've definitely bought things and they arrive and I'm like, this is not for you. Like, you don't want this. You're just buying it because you've seen half a dozen influencers post it. So how have you learned to safeguard against that mentality? I still have that and I do still succumb to it sometimes, but I think I've had to be quite manual about it. So like you say, actually asking myself, do I want this or is it just because everybody else has it and I want to feel some kind of sense of belonging? Uh, I genuinely think it sounds <laughs> it sounds really sort of, I don't know, a bit more woo-woo than I'm normally comfortable with saying, but I think a lot of the work that I've done 
over the last couple of years on my like own sense of self-esteem and feeling good enough helps it, it creates like a bit of a sort of a rock to jump off when it comes to those things but yeah I think it's something that I definitely still struggle with and one of the things that I really love about some of the discourse around money at the moment is it's not all people pretending that they're perfect and they make the right choice every time it's sort of being a bit more honest about how difficult it is and it's especially difficult on social media because you've got no idea what anybody else's means are and how they differ to your own. Yeah, I mean, social media is just, I always refer to it as really sophisticated advertising. You just don't know what people's backgrounds are, I think. I remember when I was like 27, 28, I went through a real period of like affluenza, of just feeling really envious. Like I was doing like, okay, but like just feeling really, really envious about other people's lifestyles and stuff Mm. they had and the homes they had. And I had to do like a lot of work on myself to kind of, just to reduce the kind of primacy. I mean, I, I unfollowed a lot of accounts at that point in time. Like, even now in terms of fashion influences, I follow like two or three or four who, you know, I really like their dress sense and it kind of gives me ideas. But previously, a couple of years ago, I followed like dozens and dozens of fashion influences and it just made me want to buy really expensive stuff that just wasn't within my budget. So I always think that's a really practical thing is just like actually assessing who you're exposing yourself to on Instagram. Something I want to talk about is the more emotional side of money and debt and financial hardship, which is so stigmatised and often leads to really negative emotions like guilt and shame. And you actually write in your book that in German, the word for debt and the word for guilt are the same, which is so telling. And I'd love to know why you think we tend to feel those emotions when it comes to money. Oh, well, I think it's such a huge cultural thing, and especially in the UK. I was saying this to someone last week, so it seems like the stupidest thing, but I have been watching a show called Superstore, which is like just a daft sort of sitcom. But it's also, as some TV programmes are, kind of a little bit political as well. Like There's quite a lot about big corporations and the people who work for them and the resistance to unionising in the US and stuff like that. But one of the things is that there's like a real discourse and all the characters in it discuss their debt or their credit cards or whatever. And in no scene is it ever shown to be like some kind of indictment on their character. But then when I look at even in fiction and even in that, part of our culture quite often and I notice this in so many books and tv shows now any kind of financial difficulty or debt or anything like that is almost sometimes put in there to show you that character is like untrustworthy or unreliable or selfish or frivolous and then it carries over into the headlines especially for women we see this time and time again of kind of on the front cover of weekly mags celebrities or normal people who've spent thousands on credit cards on cosmetic surgery and things like that and it it is like really sensationalized and I think we've got this odd trifecta where we have unethical and exploitative lending practice and then we have credit pushed at every given opportunity especially since the introduction of buy now pay later you know you can make the decision to borrow at the checkout but then the third kind of leg of this and what I think makes it really difficult is that then there is definitely a cultural narrative that debt is completely unacceptable and a lot of the money experts and finance experts out there are edging on shamey about it even for people who are maybe using it in quite like a responsible way and I think there's a smugness to the personal finance industry in the UK that really turns people off or that was certainly my experience of it was I felt like I couldn't engage with that advice because it wasn't for me because I wasn't good enough with money to deserve that. And I think there's also something in a lot of personal finance advice is that it comes from a point of view of assuming that people can necessarily avoid debt whereas a lot of people need 
and rely on credit and debt just to make ends meet in the UK. I can't remember the stats off the top of my head. I think it's something like one in four young women rely on credit cards and debt just to make ends meet. And yet it's framed as that being like a sign of like indulgence or you're managing your money badly. But it's like, oh no, these people just aren't being paid enough to, let's say, live in London or, you know, just to live like a normal life. And then they turn to credit cards. So I think that's also something that we need to talk about more that for some people, debt is just like an absolute necessity to get by. Yeah, 100%. And also, it's not like a permanent sentence either. You know, I think we just need way more honesty. And it's difficult because I think there's a real line between normalizing debt to the extent where we're like, yeah, it's fine to just take on whatever. Because obviously, problem debt causes all kinds of problems. And having been through it, my mental health was completely shot to shit. Like I was so anxious all the time. I would lie awake thinking about money and then I would drift off to sleep. And then it would be the first thing that jumped into my head first thing in the morning. It really stopped me from enjoying motherhood with my second baby because I was just constantly worried about whether I was going to be able to survive on maternity pay and how we were going to afford childcare. So I think there's that. But there is also the fact that Borrowing sometimes is a necessity and sometimes it is just a temporary measure and you can actually do it, if not well, but in a way that's not going to affect the whole of your life forevermore. So I think we just need like a more rounded education when it comes to borrowing and paying back. So how can people reframe their thinking when it comes to that? guilt that they might potentially feel around money and try to alleviate the shame they feel about their financial situation because it sounds like you've done a lot of work on that yourself yeah I mean I think part of it for me is the fact that like I've now heard all of the bad takes and hurtful things that people could say because when real life money was published and there was the press around it you know I did read some of the comment sections so kind of like very aware of what a lot of the judgment that's out there is and I had to grow like a slightly thicker skin which is like a very thin skinned person was quite difficult to do I think you really have to try and acknowledge the external factors and the internal factors and try to keep a state of like non-judgment about yourself when you're going through the mistakes that you've made which is really tough especially because sometimes if you make big mistakes with money you really hurt other people as well like I felt terrible even just about the damage that I felt like I'd done to like my children's future or that I'd like held my husband back from a sense of financial security by sort of being his wife and not being great with money so I think we really have to go quite deep and try to sit with those mistakes and understand why you made them and I think quite a lot of people who do successfully move on from a difficult financial situation retain like a bit of that guilt and shame and I think there probably is a certain level of that that's healthy in avoiding it happening again But I think you have to make sure that it doesn't, because if it gets to too high a level, actually it can just drag you straight back in because you feel like you're not really deserving of a better, healthier relationship with money. Did deciding to come out about your identity publicly with this account help at all in alleviating any of the shame you felt? Because my frugal year started out as an anonymous account of your debt journey and then obviously when your book came out you revealed your identity and I'm curious as to what that emotional process was like and how people in your life responded to that as well. Yeah I mean looking back it was quite intense and exhausting and I'd never written a book before and it was like a real pipe dream for me as someone who has always loved to write. So it was strange I think In some ways, it felt like it would have to happen. Obviously, it's a lot easier to promote a book if your identity is not a secret. So there was that element. But also, I think you can only talk about trying to reduce the shame and the stigma around financial difficulty for so long without putting your own name and 
voice and face to it. After a while, it did really help to reduce all of that because I did feel a sense of like catharsis and sort of, yeah, coming clean for want of a better word, but just expressing my own experience and feeling like I was quite honest I think there is something quite cleansing about feeling like you're being honest about things and it was the first time that I'd really ever been authentic online because I had always been so busy trying to sort of curate the version of me that I was putting out there but yeah I mean I had to then speak to a lot of friends and family and I think it wasn't necessarily the people really close to me that I was worried about because you, you know, had had a lot of those conversations already. But then it's the sort of a couple of mums at my son's school sort of came up to me and were like, I saw you in The Guardian the other day. How, like, how God. weird. <laughs> and I, it's that second circle. And I was, and people who I went to university with or went to school with got in touch. And I was like, mm, yeah, this is where it feels really uncomfortable. But I just had to sort of work through that I think and then I did have a real crash last summer of just feeling so overexposed and so out there and raw and I had to take a bit of a step back and try and recover because putting anything out there that makes you like vulnerable or where you're admitting to something that society sees as a big failure is really hard and you know I've seen people do it with things like addiction and motherhood and things like that there are going to be a lot of people with a lot of opinions about you and you have to try and make peace with that no I completely agree I have a couple of friends who've written very personally about their lives and I definitely think there are a lot of ups and downs in the kind of aftermath and it's something that I'm Mm. quite aware of in terms of having written a very personal memoir about my relationship with money I'm like I'm very comfortable with what I've put in there but I think it's one of those things where you have to steel yourself for the fact that, as you said, a lot of people are going to have a lot of opinions and not all of them are going to be particularly kind or even well-reasoned or well-informed. A quick word from our episode sponsor, Plum. I already mentioned that the Plum app is brilliant for helping you set and achieve your savings goals. But did you know about their excellent money maximizer tool? It makes calculating your monthly budget so much easier By taking into account your salary, balance and any bills and subscriptions you might have and giving you a weekly allowance until your next payday. So you know your limits and can track your spending without having to faff around with lots of complicated budgets. Download the Plum app for free now and try it out for yourself. And now, back to the show. Something you talk about in the book is the shame of not feeling like a proper grown-up. And I think that's especially relevant when it comes to talking about housing, specifically renting and home ownership, particularly as people get older and start hitting our late 20s and 30s. Obviously, some people start buying homes and property, or at least in my view, property starts to become one of the key dividing lines in our financial lives and our social circles. And you've written about that quite a bit. I mean, what's your current situation and how do you feel about it? Well, I mean, our number one priority after finishing paying off the debt, which we did in March, was then everything that basically we can spare will go towards a house deposit. And this is where I think I probably was more comfortable talking about money when we were in really in the shit than I am now having to get used to like a new way of talking about it because when you have a platform and a public presence and when you publish books you get some really lucrative opportunities so I now earn much more than I did up until a year ago and so we're going to be able to save for a deposit quite quickly and we've got a plot on a local new build development pre-reserved which is where they'll just take some money from you to get first dibs on it but that feels like such a huge privilege and it's funny because I feel incredibly lucky to be able to do that but still quite a few of my friends have owned their homes for years and I still do struggle to not compare or not feel like we should have got there sooner 
again, like we have these ideas about what it means to be a grown up that are quite outdated. And I think there are internal reasons for that. But also private renting in the UK is horrible for tenants. We had to move the morning after the first lockdown was announced because we asked for some maintenance to be done on our house at the house that we were living in. And our landlords decided that they would rather sell than do it. So essentially in asking for a better quality of property or for, you know, some fairly essential maintenance to be done, we made ourselves vulnerable to being evicted, essentially. And then my son was five and he loved our house. And so we had to break it to him that we had to move. And he was fine, obviously. But I think having that control taken away from you is one of the huge things about renting that stops you from feeling like an adult. And also like not being able to make your own decisions about what you want your home to look like or whether you want a pet or not. So yeah, I mean, it was always going to then be a priority for us to buy our own home just for those reasons, just for the control and the the ability to feel reasonably settled. But then, of course, when you buy a home, you take on more debt than you've ever had in your entire life. So well, it's terrible still... terms, I might add as well. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I remember reading the contract and like the mortgage terms. And obviously that's the only way to do it. And that's just how things work. But I was like, this is the most predatory loan. I'm ever going to sign oh, like yeah. I just remember just thinking some of the terms like the interest rates and like the way they can repossess and that's just the established system so I just went with it but I was I would never sign a contract like this in any other situation oh 100% and that's the thing is that it seems totally broken doesn't it that what most of us aspire to is being eligible for a huge loan in order to have yeah. somewhere to live yes when you put it like that absolutely I mean what are some ways that you've found personally if there are any to kind of make renting a bit better or feel more homely are there solutions that you found in general yeah I think I absolutely love interiors and I worked for an interiors brand for a long time so that also very much fed into my social media comparison stuff there is a real like niche on social media for rented interiors and there are a lot of people posting about making a rented house a home like Medina Grio is one and she's written a book about it actually yeah so I quite like doing that because it helps me to feel a lot more normal I suppose and we've also really dropped lucky with our landlord this time in that he is fairly hands-off you know previously we were subjected to inspections every 12 weeks which is just someone like traipsing through your house taking photos it's so intrusive and when you've got two small children it's very rare that my house is tidy so (laughs) there's that and we were able to get a cat which is just insane for me I've wanted a pet for my whole adult life and things like that have made it practically a lot easier but I think again like acknowledging how difficult it is for most people to get onto the property ladder is something that really helped me to make peace with it and realizing how many people are just gifted a deposit or most of a deposit and actually reading fully those articles about people who managed to save a deposit in a year because almost always they were able to move in with their parents or someone matched their contribution it's always Um, like a sort of little footnote I also had 50k for my parents and it's like exactly exactly but and just like remind myself that none of those things were an option for me like my dad died when I was 20 my mum's not a homeowner and there was no way for me to go back and, and live with her after university. And sort of, you know, my husband's family, he doesn't come from like a wealthy family either. So always for me, I try and retain some kind of perspective of what are the external factors that I don't have any control over in this? And what are the factors that I do have some control over? And just trying to make the best of the latter and at least like, acknowledge and try and accept the former. And I think it makes most 
financial situations feel at least like a little bit more bearable. I totally agree with you. I think something that's also important to bear in mind, I mean, the stats for first-time buyers across the UK, I think it's something like the average age is like 33. In London, it's 37. But because of some media narratives and, again, social media, it often feels like the average age to get on the housing ladder is 23 you know yeah, and it's right. like that's actually really really abnormal to get on the housing ladder in your 20s and a lot of people feel like they're falling behind as a result but it's like no that's the exception as opposed to the rule so I think that's important to bear in mind I want to talk about something completely different now which is a topic you and I have discussed privately a lot especially last year when there was a big drama involving an influencer who had been offering various business and financial advice courses that centred around the idea of money manifestation and the laws of attraction. So a brief explainer for anyone who doesn't really know what that is, money manifestation is basically the idea that you can make more money by getting rid of limiting beliefs about your financial worth and essentially attract money into your life by, I think, kind of asking the universe for money which is a really nice concept, but one that I personally think is absolute bullshit. Um, I would love to get your take on this and specifically why people are attracted to that concept. I mean, what's the appeal? Yeah, I think genuinely there was a real perfect storm with the situation that happened last year in that I think sometimes if you're feeling completely sort of desperate or you're looking for an alternative, again, to these very sort of one-size-fits-all, often quite judgy narratives around money, then you will give whatever a try. And I would say there was certainly a point when I was feeling really desperate when I would have tried anything. And I've had some private communications with some of the people who were kind of sucked in and then have then been left like a bit traumatized by the fact that they made that decision and left with a lot of sort of shame and guilt around that on top of anything else but yeah most of it comes from a place of sort of desperation yeah desperation especially during the pandemic because this happened I think at the height of the first lockdown being freelance I had to deal with a lot of income drying up overnight (laughs) And I always say that I was relatively lucky that I had other options and I had some savings and stuff like that. But if you're already on the brink, on the edge, which a lot of people were and a lot of people are, then having someone kind of say, you know, if you invest a couple of hundred pounds in this course, the returns could be, I don't know, it just really makes me angry actually just thinking about it. And I haven't thought about it in a while until (laughs) bringing this up with you, but it's just so predatory. It makes me really, really angry. One of the reasons why it makes me so cross is that a lot of the drops of different things were targeted at the times when people would have got their hardship grants from the government. So that was when I realised that that was one of the things that made me really angry. But then I think the gaslighting that happened, one of the concepts around money manifesting which is very convenient for anybody wanting to deflect responsibility, is being able to let go of money. So they do an exercise called the money drop. There are lots of people out there preaching this. And obviously the law of attraction is not new by any stretch of the imagination. I don't know when Think and Grow Rich was published, but that's kind of the seminal text. And that was decades ago. But yeah, it's this idea of being able to let go of money. So you have to drop, I think you have to like leave money somewhere. And the the idea is the universe will bring it back to you. No. But I just think if the universe is listening to what people want, then they don't care if I want a Tesla or not. There's bigger things to worry about, surely. And also that money drop exercise seems very clearly primed to make people comfortable with the idea of, dropping money into the pockets yeah. of the people running these courses. Oh, 100%. Like that's absolutely insane to me. This is another thing that really concerns me. If you've got someone fully bought into the idea that if they take advantage of the right opportunities and let go of their limiting beliefs, and I do think there's something around limiting beliefs and money, but this is not it. But yeah, that if you let go of those and grasp onto opportunities, then you'll 
really prosper and be really wealthy. If you've got people primed to believe that, it's very easy then for them to get them to drop a grand, two grand on your course that promises them six figures in six months. <laughs> I'm curious that you said that you think that there might be something to limiting beliefs, because I was actually going to ask you about that next. Is there anything at all to some of these concepts? I genuinely think that with most things that gain real traction and get people bought in, there is a base level that makes sense. So I think that one of the reasons why some people find that the law of attraction really works for them is because they change their beliefs and then their actions change. So they're kind of getting what they want through the medium of their actions. And I think that when it comes to money, so much of our like attitudes around money is shaped by our upbringing and also like maybe our family's background as well and our levels of privilege. It does make sense that some people grow up with the belief that they don't deserve the life that they want. And then that very much plays into our attitude towards money. Because I think a big mistake that a lot of people make is sort of treating money as separate from all of the other currencies in in life, like time and health, when actually it, it should be looked at sort of more holistically. So I think, you know, if you've got a case where someone just doesn't believe that they deserve to earn enough to have the life that they want, then changing those beliefs One thing that I'm always really keen to do is so many people tar themselves with this bad with money brush and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because then you're like, well, I'm terrible with money, so I might as well make this new terrible decision. And that's something that I got caught in for a long time. So I think changing those beliefs about yourself and what your potential is are quite key and they've been quite key for me. But let's not extrapolate that into something where if you vibrate at the right frequency, like God knows what that means, that the universe is going to send you wealth in abundance. Because also all of the people who are preaching this are like, I mean, it's largely middle class or even upper middle class white women whose challenges have been fairly superficial Um, and also people whose income comes that's the thing that I always found really completely baffling and just quite like circular about this whole just this whole economy generally is that a lot of the people who are preaching this they make their income from the courses and (laughs) then part of their model is teaching other people how to create these courses and it's like this isn't someone who has made six figures in three months by selling a product-based business and they're like I did this with marketing and I did this with advertising and I managed to cut my costs here and now I sold 300,000 widgets in one month as opposed to 30,000 like that I would even be much more open to because that's like genuine business advice but it's very pyramid schemey where it's like okay I will teach you how I've made money, but the way I've made money is by teaching other people. It's just so circular. Even before it all blew up, that was the thing that always, like I'd long been suspicious of that whole situation. And that was what really made me suspicious because I was like, I can't figure out how this person is making their money besides selling these courses. Like what's the business besides the courses? And it had so many other things in common with that like MLM type pyramid scheme thing, like the over emphasis on amounts of cash and milestones of cash. Because like, I try and really make my approach that the money isn't really the goal. Like, because everyone's level of progress is different. Yeah. Like some someone might be able to throw a thousand pounds a month at their debt and someone else might only be able to throw 50 pounds a month at their debt. And there's no point in shaming either one of those people or pretending that the thousand pound amount is what you should be aiming for it's like depending on their life circumstances certain amounts are going to be possible for some people and others for others I want to just you know to kind of wrap up I want to talk a little bit about the practicalities of getting out of debt and hear a bit more about how you managed it so if someone is listening to this and thinking oh my god I finally need to get a handle my credit card debt like it's keeping me up at night I can't sleep what should their first steps be 
what I had done over the course of the previous 10 years is really overcommitted myself and made things really, really complicated. And I think that's common because you take it on one bit at a time. And especially, I mean, I quite often sort of thank my lucky stars that I wasn't in that mindset sort of frame of mind around money at a time when buy now, pay later was really common like I did take out a couple of payday loans in my very early 20s which is obviously something that you know there's a big kind of furore about it and that was really sort of difficult to get through because of the extortionate interest rates so you could have accounts with like three different ones of those and then when you add in like your main bank accounts and any overdraft and then any credit cards so at one point I had six or seven credit cards, a store card and an overdraft. And so so overcommitted. So the first thing that I had to do was literally get everything out and lay it out on the table, which I think most people can kind of agree that if you're trying to have any journey with money, that has to be the first step. And it's really, really hard to do because it's essentially facing up to everything that you've been trying to bury your head in the sand about. For some people, it's not as bad as they thought it was. For me, it was kind of exactly as bad as I thought it was. So getting everything out on the table and then just seeing if there's a way to really simplify things, automate as much as you possibly can. I went through, I think, six months worth of bank statements on my banking app and just wrote down everything that I couldn't remember buying or that I had no idea where it was now, or it hadn't added any value. And then I tried to make sure that I kind of prioritised those things for things to cut out going forwards. I try and really put emphasis now on the value that something has rather than how much it costs, because you might have bought like 20 things that you immediately threw away or they got lost in your house. And that, that would cost more than like one thing, one more expensive thing that you use every day. Things like cutting out subscriptions. I've always been really terrible for like subscribing to things that I think are going to make me thinner or better looking. So like gym subscriptions, whatever that I wasn't using, any beauty box subscriptions. We'd had to cut loads of that stuff out already, actually, as things got more and more difficult. But there were probably still a couple of things lurking. So a bit like most things where you are trying to sort of overcome some demon, you sort of need like a bit of radical honesty and confrontation with yourself, which isn't obviously the nicest thing to go through, but you feel so much better afterwards. And in terms of the sort of more technical side of paying down debt, I've heard terms like debt consolidation. I've also heard various strategies about which sort of debt to prioritise paying off. Like, could you share a bit of insight on that? Yeah, so I mean, there are a couple of different ways that you can do things. Obviously, being able to consolidate debt with like a a lower interest loan is an option for some people. And it's worth looking into. It wasn't for me because my credit rating was so completely like shot to shit. And I was already so overcommitted, you know, it's kind of like lenders worst nightmare. So I had to do the best with what I had available. So it's worth looking at consolidation. It's worth looking at a balance transfer if we're just looking at like one or two credit cards which have a really high interest rate. So they're quite expensive debt. You might be able to do a balance transfer. Look on Martin Lewis's Money Saving Expert because that's where you get all the good info. But then in terms of the actual method, so there are probably basically three ways to do it. You can do what some people call a debt snowball, which is if you have several debts, you pay off the smallest one first. So you make minimum payments on everything, but anything else you throw at the smallest one first. And then you'll pay that off probably reasonably quickly. And it gives you a bit of a reward. So then you can carry on. And then by the time you're getting to your later ones, you've obviously kind of snowballed that money into the next one and the next one and the next one. So you're making quite big repayments by the end. The downside of that is that you save your biggest and potentially worst debt to last. So then the last bit, I think, could potentially drag on. Then again, similar snow theme, they call it an avalanche, but that's where you do your highest interest debt first and that's the one that will like save you the most money in interest overall 
but you could end up paying off your first one for quite a long time without any real sense of reward. Or you can do fixed payments on all of them. And that's what I did to start with because the balances made me so anxious. And also, sometimes if you're just making your minimum repayments, that your lender will get in touch with you to try and push you to pay off more, which can be quite anxiety-inducing, I think. So to begin with, we just made fixed payments of all of them, but kind of waited towards the higher interest account. And that worked for us, but I think it's really important to find something that like balances your need to have that anxiety assuaged a bit with like a more practical sense of getting everything paid off as quickly and as cheaply as possible. And how did you feel when you finally cleared your debt? Was it in any way anticlimactic? It was completely anticlimactic. (laughs) The only really nice thing is that I'm quite a visual person so I always had this like are your squares yeah I had this like grid where I was like coloring a square every time I paid off one percent when I made the final payment I colored in my last three squares and I did it like in an Instagram live that moment was really nice it's a really nice community actually I feel really lucky to have such a nice supportive community and people like actually give each other support and advice in the comment sections which I really like so that was lovely but as for everything else I mean I would be tempted to say that you know you don't get very many plaudits for undoing mistakes that you've made rather than building something but I don't even think it's that I think it's just that like I'm very I'm very much sometimes guilty of being like a participant in the head on it treadmill and I'd already set my mm. sights on the house deposit so mm. I think sometimes if you're constantly striving for more and this is something that I'm writing about at the moment can be really really difficult to recognize your achievements or feel any sense of joy so yeah it's definitely something that I'm still working on and I think maybe this feeling of sort of celebration has been stretched out a bit because I do still have moments where I wake up and think I don't have to worry about money today I saw friends this weekend for the first time in a really long time and when I put my card down with everybody else's I wasn't worried I didn't have like three backup cards in my purse in case I didn't have enough and so I think in those moments I try and really appreciate how things have changed but it didn't happen all really in that like one moment where I pressed send on the final payment have you kept the little squares the grid yeah I framed it actually Um, yeah (laughs) it's on my desk which is unfortunately next to my bed because we're lacking a bit of square footage but yeah it is quite nice I think I'll probably always keep it it might end up at the back of a cupboard at some point (laughs) Claire it's been absolutely wonderful talking today thank you so much for sharing your advice and yeah thank you very much thank you for having me and that's it for this week thank you for tuning in if you've enjoyed this conversation then I think you'll really enjoy my book we need to talk about money which is a blend of memoir and cultural commentary all about money and is available now in hardback, ebook and audio with signed copies available from waterstones.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Otegauagba. That's O-T-E-G-H-A-U-W-A-G-B-A. And please do leave a positive review or rating for the podcast if you're so inclined, as it really does help give the show a boost. See you next week.